evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. In the United States, an average of 20 people are physically abused by intimate partners every minute. That equates to more than 10 million abuse victims annually. One in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner physical violence, intimate partner contact sexual violence, and or intimate partner stalking. Intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all violent crimes. Physical violence is often accompanied by emotionally abusive and controlling behavior as part of a much larger systemic pattern of dominance and control. Domestic violence can result in physical injury, psychological trauma, and even death. Domestic violence is prevalent in every community and affects all people, regardless of age, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, gender, race, religion, or nationality. With the COVID-19 pandemic, a bad situation has gotten even worse. As a result of COVID-19, not only are many families struggling financially, which increases stressors that often trigger physical abuse, but the stay-at-home orders and dangers associated with leaving one's home has made it even more difficult for victims of domestic violence to seek help and refuge. On this evening's show, we're gonna talk with two attorneys with the North Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Sherry Honeycutt Everett, who is the Legal and Policy Director of the organization, and Nisha Williams, a staff attorney with the organization and a proud graduate of NCCU School of Law. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So we want to first have you all share your background with us. How did you become in work involving domestic violence? And Sherry, let's start with you. Yeah, thanks, April. Um, so I uh, was born and raised in North Carolina. Um, and my path to law school was via public education. I, I became a school teacher for a few years um, after I graduated from UNC. But I really realized that I uh, wanted to do systems and policy work uh, after a few years of teaching. So I, gra I graduated from UNC Chapel Hill School of Law in 2008. While I was there, I got connected with the legal aid office in Durham and really uh, just fell in love with the work. Um, worked in the domestic violence prevention unit uh, when I was a, a, in law school and then I became a staff attorney in that unit as well. So after about 10 years of practice and direct services serving clients in Durham, I the opportunity came for me to move to the coalition and work on some issues that I had uh, really seen firsthand for 10 years whenever I was on the ground doing the work in Durham and, and surrounding counties. So that, that was about a year and a half ago and that's when I landed uh, October 2018 at the coalition and I've been there um, ever since alongside Nisha. And I can share, um, Sherry and I have been together at the coalition for about a year and a half. 
now um, joining the new iteration of the legal team at um, NCCADV. Um, but I am a proud graduate of uh, Central's Law School. I graduated in 2009, um, but during my time in law school, I was actually exposed um, to domestic violence court and through the domestic violence clinic. So I actually took the domestic violence class and then um, I followed it with being um, in the domestic violence clinic um, that was brought on by, um, that was um, led by Professor Daria Hayes. Um, I believe we were actually part of her first year that she did hosted the clinic. And um, during that time, um, I learned how to go to court. I learned how to um, make an appearance before a judge. I, I learned how to serve clients. I learned how to speak to clients in sensitive situations um, as a 3-0. And my second semester of my third year of law school, I actually work with the pro bono clinic and continue to work with uh, by working with the DV clinic. Um, when I came out of law school, it was in the height of the Great Recession. And so work was very limited, but because I had learned how to practice domestic violence law um, under Professor Hayes, I was able to begin um, a private practice on my own. And um, through the mentorship of Professor Hayes and other great professors at the law school, um, I really learned how to become a private practitioner. And I did that for almost 10 years, um, working with the, my law office, the law office of Nisha Williams, um, and decided um, about a year and a half ago to get into more um, systemic work. Um, as a private practitioner, I had const I would constantly be in different spaces in my as my own person, kind of speaking truth to power in whatever capacity I could for um, for just rights and for all people because I worked as a defense attorney and I worked as a plaintiff's attorney. So my eyes weren't necessarily skewed toward one perspective. Um, and so now coming into this work in DV and focusing more particularly on these cases, I um, am proud to have like the vast array of cases and clients that I've had in my experience. Um, but I would also say that the majority of my clients were old, were working class and poor people um, and, and folks of color, primarily black people. And um, I've seen so many different times in our system where they're overlooked for whatever reasons. And so um, I'm just happy that I can use my voice to um, continue to speak truth to power and set the stage for the next generation as Professor Joyner has um, very aptly taught us um, over the years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And we are incredibly proud of all of the wonderful work you're doing and you certainly uh, represent uh, the mission of, of this fine law school. And so, so thank you for that and thank you for serving as a model and inspiration to our current students. So uh, Sherry, can you share with us the work of the coalition? Yes, we, we are an, an organization whose primary mission is to end domestic violence in the state of North Carolina, which is uh, very ambitious um, given the nature of the problem and all of the factors that go into creating situa the, a situation in which domestic violence uh, can flourish to begin with. Um, but we have a, a large staff. We have a, a almost 30 staff members who work on the issue from various uh, angles because we know that there's not uh, there's not just one 
response that we all need to be involved in. Uh, we need to be looking at all different angles uh, around this problem and responding appropriately from each of them. So we, in the legal and policy program, we're divided into two, two parts, really. There's the direct legal services uh, program in which our staff attorneys, and Nisha's one of them, represent clients in their proceedings in, in court. And then we have the policy and, and lobbying and legislative program. And that's the program that does systems advocacy and looks at the issue from um, different policy standpoints and works with different agencies, other nonprofits, and um, collaborates across across different issues with, with other folks working on different aspects of the issue. So um, we stay busy and um, we have more work than we can handle, but we, uh, we have a great staff and a lot of passion and dedication um, amongst our staff. And truly uh, have, you know, I learn and grow from our staff every day and from, uh, from Nisha and from the, the folks that are in, you know, working in the different programs um, because we do have so much to do. <laughs> the, the task is overwhelming. Um, but we're trying. We have a lot of energy. We have a lot of uh, a lot of dedication, and we know that we are um, not going to succeed anytime soon. But that doesn't mean we should not be up for the challenge. Well, let, let me ask both both of you, uh, since uh, you've been involved in this uh, area of uh, law now for a, a substantial period of time, and probably this is not a question that you are often ask, but uh, what is the uh, impact of your work on you, on your mentality, on your uh, emotional stability as you deal with these people who are uh, deeply uh, flawed, troubled, and harmed uh, on a uh, daily basis and trying to help them uh, repair themselves? How does that uh, impact you? I know for me personally, I um, would oftentimes say it humbles me in the sense that um, there are many times when I'm overwhelmed by my life stressors. Um, and when I come in contact with some of my clients, it, it helps put things in perspective for me personally. Um, but that still doesn't negate, I think, the secondary trauma that comes with the work that we do. Um, and I think one thing that we as a team do very well at our agency is we talk it out. We don't just, I think, talk about our cases, but I think we also talk about like the particular impact certain cases have on us, um, whether or not it just be um, a particular client who was extremely emotional, or if we dealt with um, a young person who had been sexually assaulted, um, or if it dealt with, um, someone who may we may have found out was actually um, someone who was themselves abusing the other party, right? Um, and so we oftentimes, if we didn't have each other, I think, to talk to, it can become um, an endless cycle in our heads. And I do remember like being in private practice, how that can oftentimes be, be very lonely. Um, and so I do very much value the team that we're on. Um, and how we can work through this, but I also very much value my therapist, um, my black therapist, uh, my black woman therapist, um, that I can work through some of these issues out, like in where it intersects with the home life plus the work life. Whereas I'm able to kind of just talk about more so the impact of the work life with my team um, 
and because I don't have a, I don't live with another attorney, I can't really share with him um, the things that I go through at work um, where Sherry and Kathleen, both of their spouses are actually attorneys. So um, it, the, the value of a therapist, I think has proven um, immensely helpful in my life. And um, I did, I remember started seeing a therapist when I was in law school. So I very much value mental health. And I think that, and I encourage my clients very much so to seek out mental health um, assistance because I, I oftentimes remind them that I can't heal those emotional wounds. I can try to help them through the court process, but those emotional wounds is something that they need to work through and that um, through the help of, of therapy can potentially assist them. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. No, Cher, I was going to ask you if you had anything you wanted to, to add about how you deal with the, um, the, the heavy weight of your area of, uh, of practice and advocacy. Well, I think that the, the first thing that I, I would say is that uh, I second everything Nisha just said. <laughs> I, I truly do. We're very open in, in our agency and in our field about the need to, to really take mental health and, and emotional health very seriously. Um, and so we try to be very supportive and encourage um, our staff and also take time for ourselves to, uh, to recharge and recover and, and do that, do the work that we need to do to take care of ourselves so that we can take care of, care of our clients. Um, I think that it's, um, it's important to recognize when you maybe uh, need to transition away from direct services with clients. Um, I think that that is not necessarily something that every person or every lawyer has in them for to do for 50 years. And one of the things that I think that happens, which which can be very tragic for for victims is uh, when people do reach sort of the period of burnout when when maybe it's time to take a step back and recover um, from from that so that you don't inadvertently do harm to clients who by no, no longer having the energy and, and time and effort that they deserve. So, um, you know, 10 years for me was, was, uh, was adequate, was, a, was enough time. And I think part of my recognition in myself was that for my clients, um, moving to do systemic and policy work was, was the next right step because I, I did think that I had gotten experience and was able to take a lot of what I had learned there and move it to, to this more systemic level. But it's, it's hard work. And, um, you know, to any attorney who's doing this work with clients directly on a daily basis, I would say it's imperative that you do uh, take time for yourself and um, seek mental health treatment if you need to and make sure you have emotional support and resources every, every single day because it takes it out of you every single day. Well, you know, I, I appreciate that because, you know, I, when I started practicing law, uh, like uh, Nisha, I was uh, by myself and uh, had a host of uh, uh, domestic uh, cases. And every case uh, started as an emergency. And every uh, contact, for the most part, uh, that, uh, that I had uh, with those clients was uh, an emergency. And I had represented people who were abused, and I represented people who were abusers, uh, sometimes at the same uh, time. And uh, I know the uh, emotional toll, I had to uh, give it up. 
uh, I, I, I found solace in dealing with criminal cases <laughs> because, you know, domestic cases much worse uh, than, uh, than those. So I apologize for raising that uh, with you. But, you know, out of that, though, you, you do get a sense of uh, some characteristics or traits that uh, uh, people who are abusers and who are abused will demonstrate. Can you kind of talk about uh, some of those uh, characteristics and, uh, and traits that you've been able uh, to, uh, to determine? Nisha, do you want to start since you're still seeing clients directly, or do you want me to start? Um, I could. Well, I'll tell you what, let, let's, let's hold for one second because we need to take a break uh, right now. And uh, we, we're at uh, that point. Uh, this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And uh, we're talking about uh, domestic violence, and particularly as it uh, is impacted with this uh, COVID 19. And uh, we have uh, outstanding experts in this area, but we want you to stay with us for a few minutes as we take our break, and we will be right back to uh, continue this discussion. Good evening. My name is Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and these are your weekly announcements. The Virtual Justice Project presents an HBCU blueprint for the digital future, teaching and learning in a virtual space. This event will be hosted by the Virtual Justice Project in partnership with the HBCU Library Alliance and Johnson C. Smith University on June the 10th from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. To register for this informative event, more information is at hbcudigitalblueprint.eventbrite.com. There will be a Black Lives Matter peaceful protest held in Durham, North Carolina on June the 11th at 5 p.m. at the KFC parking lot by NCCU campus, located at 806 Fayetteville Street in Durham, North Carolina. Marching downtown will begin at 5.45 p.m. Masks and gloves are strongly encouraged if attending. The rash of racially charged incidents have prompted the Smithsonian Secretary and the founding director of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture to create its powerful new web portal, Talking About Race. Talking About Race provides digital tools and online resources tailored for educators, parents, caregivers, and individuals committed to racial equality. More information is at nmaahc.si.edu. My name is Nastasia Harris, and this has been your weekly announcements. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, where we are continuing our discussion about uh, domestic violence and the uh, COVID-19 uh, crisis or pandemic that we are dealing with uh, right now and how those two uh, intersect. Uh, and we ended up our first uh, session with the question about uh, characteristics and traits uh, that uh, people exhibit who are either abused or, or abusers and uh, ask uh, both Nisha and Sherry if they would kind of uh, explain that or talk about uh, those um, those uh, characteristics uh, for us. So uh, which of you want to uh, start with that discussion? I was gonna say, Sherry, you could start off on that one and give more of a general, and then I could maybe um, tweak it to say 
how it works with my clients currently. Sure. Um, I think the first thing that I would say is that it's, inc it's incredibly complex. I don't think that you can necessarily, you know, uh, boil down to one specific set of circumstances or one specific set of characteristics that would cause someone to use abuse or, or, you know, cause a, a, a person to be attracted to persons who do use, use abuse. Um, that said, I think if you work in the field, it becomes incredibly clear that, um, you know, a large percentage, if not a majority of people who do use domestic violence in, in relationships are themselves victims and have themselves uh, experienced incredible hardships or experienced um, relationship models that weren't healthy in their own lives. And so that's that's the first thing I would say about people who, who do end up um, using abuse is that we, we know we know that it is incredibly likely that they themselves have been victims at some point. Um, and so, you know, as far as a person who ends up in a relationship, there's no one, there's no one profile, but I, I think you can look at and say, you know, this person is a typical victim. We know there's an, an incredible amount of diversity um, around the people that we see in our cases, the people that, that use our court system, the people that use services for providers. Um, but, you know, I, I would say that it's a, a very common circumstance um, to find that there are people who are um, unable to leave relationships because of financial circumstances and economic hardship. Um, so that is a fairly common characteristic. It's certainly by no, no means every, every case, but we know that there's a lot of um, socioeconomic stressors that can, that can come to bear on those relationships. Um, and in general, we, we also know um, that victims are typically, you know, they're often not in the only abusive relationship in which they have ever been as well. So that we, we know that there are patterns that repeat across uh, relationships, across family generations and across, um, you know, the segments of our society over time. And I would um, echo everything Sherry uh, just stated and, and I, in particular, practice uh, currently in Durham County and Granville County. And um, Durham, of course, is a more urban um, base uh, versus Granville is much more rural, even though Durham, of course, has its rural pockets. Um, I will say that poverty does play a major role in many of the um, lives of my clients, um, both rural and urban, um, in that their ability to leave the current situation that they're in um, is less feasible than if they had access to wealth. Um, and then having children compounds all of those issues. And very much so, many of the clients that I deal with um, do have children involved. And um, the nuance that, that children add into the mix um, is that they cannot, um, by virtue of the co-parenting relationship, sever that relationship with their abuser. Um, and so the, the ongoingness of the abuse continues to happen in, in various forms, oftentimes through, um, through the children, um, through utilizing the children as, as, um, as tools of, of aggression. Um, I also think that um, there is something to be said about the charisma that abusers oftentimes exhibits. And so in um, different courtrooms or in, even in different, um, circumstances of how we live and engage with people, folks can oftentimes see 
the abuser as not an abuser because of their charisma and their ability to walk and talk around situations versus the, the, the victims may look like more hostile, more anxious, um, and exhibit certain physical characteristics that one may see as quote unquote crazy. Um, and so then that lack of trust in the things that they're saying um, is added to that. And so, and oftentimes you can see this in a courtroom um, where, especially if, if folks are not given adequate advice, um, they can, um, they may be unable to tell their story um, to the fact finder um, being the judge. Um, so I think that in real life, how these things play itself out, like Sherry said, can be extremely nuanced. And one fact pattern a judge may see in a case on Monday may be very different on a Tuesday, but the abuse is still abuse. Um, but because people's lives are very different, we can't necessarily say, oh, because they drink alcohol that they're an abuser. Because another thing that we oftentimes say at our agency is there are lots of alcoholics out here that are not abusing folks. Um, so just because there are these um, additional substances that are used um, or other tactics, those are just tactics that are used to exert that power and control. That doesn't necessarily mean that that by its virtue is is an abuser. And, and that raises the question of when we say domestic violence, wh what does that mean? What does that encompass? Um, I would say, at least from the statute, for, so when we look at the um, current statute of like, what is domestic violence and who falls under that category, it very much um, lands within the household. So what we view as um, a household could be former spouses, former or current spouses, grandparents to, to, to children, to grandchildren, parent to child. Um, right now in our statute, we even have roommates. So if you live together or have formerly lived together, that act that occurs um, would be considered domestic violence. There's still a gap in North Carolina. Um, we are currently awaiting a court of appeals ruling um, but there is a huge gap that's occurring right now in our 50B statute of, of who um, should be able to access a 50B. And right now, um, same-sex couples who are in a dating relationship only, who have not lived together or who are not spouses or former spouses, cannot access a 50B. Um, all they can access currently is a 50C due to the fact that the language in the statute explicitly states only opposite sex um, op people of the opposite sex who are in a dating relationship can access um, a 50B under the definition of uh, domestic violence. So I think it's interesting to see how political still we, we um, determine um, how domestic violence is defined. Um, and it's also defined as um, an act of, or a threat to act to cause bodily harm or attempt to cause bodily harm, as well as um, anything to, um, har cause harassment or continued harassment that rises to the level to cause as to cause substantial emotional distress. And I think it's also important to note that that substantial emotional distress is a subjective um, understanding rather than a reasonable person's understanding. Um, so what may be um, traumatic to me may be very different um, for Sherry. And so being able to to put that into context of each person's life is important when we think about violence in, in someone's home.
You mentioned uh, 50B and 50C. Can you explain what those two statutes provide? Chair, you want to take this one? Sure. So those 50B and 50C are the uh, sort of colloquial names because the, those, that's the number that we assigned the statute in, in our state's code. Uh, the 50B is our state's domestic violence protective order, often called a restraining order statute. And that is a civil action. It's not criminal, even though some of the underlying behaviors may be criminal in nature. Um, it's a civil action by which a victim of domestic violence can go to court and ask a judge for any number of forms of relief. And there's quite a bit of flexibility around what a victim can ask for and receive, um, ranging from temporary child custody um, on an emergency type basis to a, a request that a, a defendant stay away from a victim and not contact a victim um, and, and more. And so, that is one of the two types of restraining orders. The other is what we call a 50C, which is a restraining order that's available between two parties that don't have a domestic uh, relationship, that don't have a personal relationship as defined by the statute in 50B. And so the difference between the two is really that 50B is a much stronger and uh, legally um, criminally enforceable um, type of order. And that's in recognition of the seriousness of the, the problem of domestic violence and the danger to a victim of domestic violence. So a violation of a 50B restraining order is a class A1 misdemeanor in North Carolina. Whereas if you violate a chapter 50C restraining order, which would be something that perhaps, for example, um, you know, neighbors in a dispute might be seeking, um, is only enforceable by contempt of court. So in other words, that, that wouldn't be charged criminally. So there are other differences between the two that are important, but when we say the words 50B and 50C, those are the, those are the basic things that we're really talking about. How, how effective are the, either the 50B or the 50C uh, in resolving conflict uh, between uh, intimate uh, parties uh, or parties who are in contact uh, with each other? That's a great question. <laughs> there, there's a large body of, of um, sort of research and studies and, and uh, places in which people have tried to evaluate the effectiveness of, of some of these measures. And in some ways, they're quite effective. Um, in others, you know, we really have to um, make sure to, to tell people it's a, it is, it is a, piece, a piece of paper. I'd, I've never liked that expression because I think that that dismisses some of the real value of a 50B because you, it is a piece of paper, but it, it, they can be very helpful. But they're never alone enough. You know, parties who are in these relationships need a range of supports and a range of other types of intervention and response in addition to um, the restraining order itself. So in, in, my, uh, in the way that I talk about it, I, I tell people there's a lot of value in it because it can give people a tool for enforcement uh, around behaviors that normally can't, can't, be, can't be stopped with the law, um, such as repeated contacts, um, calling, showing up at your home, things like that that aren't necessarily criminally enforceable. It gives, it gives victims another tool. But in and of itself, it's not, it's not the only thing that we think that victims need to do. They also need to take other steps, such as safety planning, such as financial, um, you know, in seeking some, some assistance and, and financial support. 
um, that would en enable them to take the steps that they need to be able to leave a, an abusive relationship. And I don't know if Nisha wants to add to that from her experience every day working with victims who are seeking them. <laughs> and I, I would add that um, I think the great thing about accessing um, these restraining orders is being able to access new boundaries. Um, with uh, the defendant. So one is in particular for folks who have um, children. Um, oftentimes what I hear from the clients is that there's there are no boundaries in that relationship that even after they've terminated their personal, their intimate relationship, um, there's still this level of contact that's happening between the parties. And oftentimes the plaintiffs are seeking some way to like to quelch the 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 level of contact and so um oftentimes what i the way that i um phrase it to many of my clients is is boundaries is that they are looking for some type of boundaries written down on a piece of paper that the defendant can be held accountable to because what they found in their relationship is that they're no longer able to work it out together um without the utilization of uh, a neutral third party and so with having um, this order in place, be it done like after a hearing is had with a judge or we were able to all agree to the terms before court in what we call a consent order, um, both parties are able to understand like these are the bare minimum rules of engagement between each other. Um, and so I think that helps, um, helps the plaintiff be able to exercise those boundaries. Um, and then also when they come to court, they're able to access potentially our court advocates. So for example, in Durham County, we have Durham Crisis Response Center, um, DCRC, um, and we actually have a location, they have a location in the courthouse in what's called our um, Family Justice Center that's located in the Durham courthouse. And they're able to access court advocates. Now, as we later get to talk about the impact of COVID, um, we will see that the way that uh, victims are able to access these court advocates is now going to is now different because many of them are working remotely. But being able to access those additional resources, um, I think, is essential. And that's another big part of what we do at the coalition is offering um, technical assistance and advice to the various domestic violence service providers across the state. Um, and provide them with information on how to um, engage with clients, how to help them, how to give them legal information and not legal advice um, as, they're, they're, as they're helping folks who are seeking assistance. So Nisha, you just mentioned COVID and how the resources available to um, domestic violence survivors has, has changed. Can we, can we talk about how uh, the pandemic and um, the economic impact the pandemic is having on families and the stay-at-home orders, the impact that that's having on the incidences of domestic violence? Um, I, I would say, um, at least I know from Durham's perspective, initially we saw a decrease in filings for the restraining orders, but an increase in criminal um, uh, charges being made on defendants uh, for um, domestic violence related charges. Um, what we also were seeing were um, the, that folks were not necessarily able to engage with uh, the court advocates at the domestic violence uh, service provider um, because many of them had went remote um, and not being able to access 
um, their new plan of action. And so what we've been doing, um, at least at Durham County, and I know a number of other DVSPs throughout the state have been doing is implementing remote policies, but making sure to put it throughout the courthouse and throughout other important areas and communities so that folks can know this is how you can contact your court advocate. This is how you can have access to the same information. I think there is something to be said about not being able to have somebody sit next to you, offer you comfort and even like hold your hand. Um, and with the with social distancing and with limiting the number of people in courtrooms, um, we are seeing that um, family and friends are being told that they can't come into the courtroom right now. Um, and so that also means that the victim is coming into the courthouse potentially by themselves, um, potentially without a court advocate um, next to them and making a hard process even lonelier. Um, and we've tried um, many in many different ways throughout our work um, in the DV movement to make it less lonely. And so I think the way that COVID is impacting people it, is that it's putting them, um, it's isolating them in a brand new way, even in the court system that is supposed to be the place where you could come to access resources. So um, that's one of the things that Sherry has been working on and we can um, discuss in more detail. All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Sherry Honeycutt Everett, who is the legal and policy director of the North Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and Nisha Williams, who is a staff attorney with the coalition and a proud graduate of NCCU School of Law. And we've been talking about domestic violence and the impact that COVID is having not only on the increased incidences of domestic violence, but also how that is impacting individuals' access to resources. We're gonna take a quick break, but we hope you'll stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Nastasha Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition a government for redress of grievances. The right to protest is a fundamental right guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment and is an essential component of democracy. Though demands for social and political change have become more expansive in recent decades with the rise of social media, Mass gatherings and demonstrations against those in power are no stranger to the world and the nation's political history. In fact, for centuries, Americans have taken to the streets to make our voices heard, to effect change, and to fill and display the power and solidarity of mass gatherings even before the adoption of the First Amendment in 1791. Your constitutional right to protest is most protected in traditional public forums such as streets, sidewalks, and parks. Police may not break up a gathering unless there is a clear and present danger of riot, disorder, interference with traffic, or other immediate threat to public safety. The recent unlawful and unwarranted death of an African-American man, George Floyd, have ignited many around the nation to invoke their First Amendment protections to speak out against police brutality and corrupt practices by law enforcement. Unfortunately, acts such as the one this nation has recently been confronted with are not new occurrences and may occur again. This tragedy only confirms why protests are so vital to our problematic system. Protests bring people together, 
help bypass news blackouts and an unsympathetic media, provides an essential voice for the people and especially people of color, and as we have seen, compel those in power to invoke change. To learn more about your right to protest, more information is at aclu.org. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and a legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. We're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Nisha Williams, who is a staff attorney with the North Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and also Sherry Honeycutt Everett, who is the legal and policy director of the coalition. Um, Sherry, right before the break, uh, Nisha was talking about the impact that COVID is having on individuals who are seeking access to the courts um, to respond to or to help them in situations where they may be victims of domestic violence. Can you share your thoughts about how COVID is impacting this, this space? Sure. Um, we, we knew when, when the stay-at-home order was first issued that we were really looking for or going to be looking at a perfect storm for victims of domestic violence and that the conditions were going to be such that um, a problem that's already terrible would be exacerbated. And, and that really is how a lot of, of the last few weeks has played out. And we know that between, between the isolation, um, the requirements to stay home, the fact that workplaces have gone remote, the fact that we have economic disaster in our state with people out of work and furloughed. And so we have people who are at home unemployed, experiencing financial stressors um, on top of the incredible stress and uncertainty surrounding the illness itself. Um, and so, you know, we started early on at the coalition um, trying to respond to, to a specific pandemic um, in ways that, that both survivors and people who work on their behalf would find helpful and to try to increase access to the support supports and protections that we do have. So we just uh, across the agency started um, stepping up our response and holding, you know, weekly calls for employees of domestic violence centers across the state, um, weekly meetings with court advocates to help them um, access support and one another about around how how they could work over around courthouse closings and reduced hours for filing. Um, and we did see, as Nisha mentioned, an initial dip in people the first couple weeks after the order was issued, um, being able to access services, mainly because people were so uncertain and didn't know that the courthouse was even still open um, and the agencies were, were even still open across the state. Uh, but then after that initial dip, <clears throat> excuse me, we saw in many places uh, drastic increases for requests for service. Um, in some places, more than a hundred percent increase in request for service over the same time period a year ago. And so we just continue to try to respond um, in the ways that that survivors around the state need. Um, we are uh, right now starting to do some direct aid with survivors shortly here at the coalition. We're also continuing to provide increased support to domestic violence agencies, such as Anisha already mentioned, the, the Durham Crisis Response Center is, is our local DV agency, um, and continue to, to try to do those and to draw in ways that we 
know that uh, we can support both advocates who work on behalf of survivors and, and victims themselves. Um, and so doing that in a number of ways, there's not one response that's required uh, trying to look at a number of different um, needs that victims have and respond to all of those. And, uh, and just, I would also add to what Sherry is saying is that when we talk about our responses and talk to um, folks about the types of responses they should give, we also very much um, center folks' identities. Um, so the folks that we're serving. So even at our coalition, we currently have programs that focus particularly on LGBTQ plus um, folks, as well as um, we have an ABC program, which stands for African-American, Afro, uh, Black and Afro-Caribbean, um, that's led um, by Olivia Bass, um, and where we put out different trainings and different guidances on how to engage with um, specific demographics, because like we stated earlier, um, domestic violence is not um, the same for everyone. And then when we compound it with different folks' identities and how they're harmed, um, even more so by society, we want to be provide spaces for them that are safe and not spaces that will continue to compound their trauma. And so we very much um, want people to to meet the clients where they're at. And we also very much um, promote what's called this uh, survivor empowerment model where we ask our advocates to ask our clients, what is it that they need from us? Um, so not so much that we're just throwing resources at them or just talking at them. We're, ta we're having a conversation with them about what is it that they need for us to help them through their situation. Well, what what relief relief valves uh, are there presently in existence uh, for people who are, I guess, experiencing the the, the cabin fever and the uh, buildup of uh, animosity and tension that might be present in a home, and uh, they they want to find some alternative, something that they can do to uh, relieve that uh, pressure. What what's available to them? Well, I'll start, and I and I want to just name um, that your your question ex sort of exposes, I think, a, a big gap that we have right now in our field, which which is providing resources and support to people who are prone to using violence in relationships. You know, we we do have um, DV intervention programs around the state, but we the resources uh, are that are required for folks are not close to met. And so that's, you know, just the question itself to me exposes, and I'm, and I'm always glad to have an opportunity to say um, that we really do need to be putting more supports and, and putting more um, into ways to help people, not only who experience abuse um, as a victim, but people who, who use abuse and tend to perpetuate it. Um, and we do also know that there, as Nisha mentioned, you know, we, we can't respond in one monolithic way because the, the needs are not the same for everyone. So we encourage people to seek out specific communities, culturally specific resources to access people um, who, with skills and expertise, you know, to, to help you in, in whatever your specific and unique needs are. Um, and I'll stop there and, and maybe let Nisha add to that anything else that, that she has um, to offer. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think about like, 
as in particular, you were asking about what are ways or places or things that folks can access in this time of COVID. Um, and I think that that's the problem is that there really isn't much, especially when you are quarantined um, inside your home. Um, as we do see um, the economy reopening, of course, for um, economic purposes and not for health purposes, um, we are finding that people will be leaving the home um, more, more likely, but there is major unemployment that's happening. Um, prior to COVID, um, the black community had um, a double the rate of um, unemployment that white Americans have. Um, and so just imagining how bad the recession is right now, we are, we are aware that black folks in particular are the ones that not only have lost jobs, but are continuing to be frontline workers. Um, and so <clears throat> the folks access or limited access to money continues um, to be an issue. And so that is one of the things that we're working on at the coalition is trying to get money directly to survivors. So we are currently working on a soft launch um, where we can give monies um, directly to survivors because aside from money and custody lawyers, I would think are two of the biggest needs that we hear from our clients. Um, we represent clients in um, helping them get a restraining order, not necessarily a custody order. One of the things though that our um, great summer interns were able to do last year was to draft up pro se custody packets um, for the counties that we in particularly serve. Um, so we have one for Durham, one for Orange, one for Johnston, uh, which was a county we used to serve, and one for Granville. And what we've done in our pro se custody packets is given them different tools on how to one, fill out a template that we created, but also um, helping to understand the court rules more in more layman's terms. Um, so we have that on our website um, and can provide those resources as requested. Um, so if folks contact us at the coalition, um, and you can contact me at nwilliams at nccadv.org, we can provide that free resource. Um, and I think again, just offering people access to resources is key in this time. Um, I will also name that another potential issue that I've seen is um, folks getting their restraining orders served in certain counties. Um, that's continuing to be an issue again as, as our um, police are um, focusing more on frontline activities. Um, certain things such as service isn't necessarily a priority. So naming that as, a, as another um, issue that local, local um, jurisdictions are having is also important to know. And, you know, another dynamic that we see in the families, in many families, that, that's adding to the stressors, of course, are, you know, children not being in school. So, you know, you've got the economics, you've got the health stressors, you've got children who, you know, are still trying to, you know, get online and do their schoolwork. And so the whole kind of family dynamic is this uh, powder keg. And uh, as Sherry was saying, this is kind of like the perfect storm for increased domestic violence. Um, Sherry, you were mentioning that there needs to be more support for, for people. And you also mentioned that with the coalition, there's the direct legal services side and Nisha works in that area and you do a lot of the legislative and policy work. Can you talk about 
the legislative and policy agenda of the coalition and, and some of the uh, projects that you all are working on? Sure. We, uh, um, as you know, are, are currently in the short session with our General Assembly. So um, we at the coalition have a two-year uh, legislative agenda cycle. Um, I will tell you that the substance of our, our long session last agenda was really to look at, at firearms and to look at some of the specific protections for victims of domestic violence um, in relationships where there is a firearm present, because of course it, it increases the, the chances of a victim becoming a homicide victim um, by a staggering amount for there to be the presence of a firearm. So one thing that um, we tried to do is to really give judges um, the tools that they need to be able to, um, to take a look at cases and assess when there is a very high risk of lethality um, because of the presence of a firearm and other factors. We were responding to a court of appeals case um, that came out uh, several years ago, Stancil versus Stancil, um, that weakened judges' abilities to really have the discretion to remove firearms. And unfortunately, we were not successful in 2019, but we will continue to be looking at some, some firearms policy and legislation in, in the future um, around, around these issues. Excellent. Um, so what, if someone is um, in a situation where they are being subjected to domestic violence um, or someone knows of a family member or a friend who might be in harm's way, what advice can you give to someone who might be in that situation and to those who may be concerned about someone who's in that situation? What are some of the steps that people can, can take? I would definitely say if they are concerned about, um, if, so, if someone is concerned about a person that they know, um, I would not recommend that they go and talk to the person. I think that you need to um, wait and um, provide a listening ear once that person is ready and um, willing to share uh, with you because I think um, this is a very um, fragile and um, thing to talk about. And so people are not going to readily put themselves in a situation where they feel like they will continue to be judged or shamed um, for their relationship. And I think oftentimes family members can want the best for people, um, but don't know how to work through the cycles that come with DV. Um, another important statistic um, folks should know is that it takes um, a person about seven times to leave um, their, their abuser before they actually permanently leave um, the, the potential abuser. And so um, because I know that statistic, I know that when I engage with clients um, who might let me know that they've decided they want to dismiss their restraining order because they're getting back with the person or because they don't think the person is bad and they don't want to cause harm to the person. Um, I, I hear those as, as valid reasons. Um, and I separate my, um, my own personal views of their choices because, again, it's their choice. And so I think um, when speaking in particular with victims of domestic violence, um, centering them and having them make the decision and is important because they have been in a relationship where they were told 
what to do, how to do, why to do it. And so it's crucial to give them advice on how to make decisions on their own um, and not to feel like they are doing something because their attorney said to do something or because their mother or aunt said to do something. That is not what we want to encourage. We want to encourage people to follow their own um, wishes. I think you're- Sherry, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, I, th I think um, Nisha said it, said it really well. It's you know, and that statistic that she named the seven times to leave an abusive relationship is just really critical for anyone trying trying to help someone who's a victim of domestic violence to really understand and understand what it means um, for you as a person who is trying to be a support and trying to provide resources, because I think that what is often the case for victims is that they uh, find that people are, are that there are support people are frustrated when they repeatedly take take back a, a, a person in a, into the relationship over and over again. So that's the message I would like to give to the, the support people out there in the world who care about someone who's a victim of domestic violence. And just understand the cycle and understand how many times it's likely you'll have to move through that with that person um, and, conserve, and conserve your energy and resources accordingly. And we have a number of resources on our page right now on our website, nccadv.org, that um, lays out different resources and tools for folks, as well as um, COVID, um, additional COVID re resources, even coloring books and things um, for self-care for kids and adults. Um, so there's a wide array. Excellent. And we encourage our listeners to definitely go to the North Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence website. Um, a lot of resources available. And if you do have concerns for yourself or for a family member or friend, um, it's vitally important that, that you know, we all educate ourselves so that we can better address this crucial problem. We'd like to thank our guests. Sherry Honeycutt Everett, who is the Legal and Policy Director for the Coalition, and Nisha Williams, not only a proud graduate of North Carolina Central University School of Law, but also an amazing staff attorney with the Coalition. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you have learned something from this show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you missed this show on Sunday, you can now find us on iTunes in podcast form. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, and safe.